series this summer called uh, the Summer of Psalms. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it to Psalms. We're in Psalm 129, and we are looking at the Psalms of Ascent, um, which are the the Psalms that, um, a collection of Psalms that the Israelite people would recite or would sing to one another, to themselves as they traveled to the Israel um, for the Holy, to Jerusalem, sorry, to Jerusalem for the Holy Land, um, and the Holy Days and the Holy Festivals, as they would go on these sometimes week-long journeys um, through treacherous territory, um, they would they would recite these things to each other, and these 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 psalms kind of paint a picture for us of the journey that we as Christians are on, as we sort of uh, ascend the hill of the Lord, if you will, looking ahead to the holy city. Uh, this thing that we call discipleship, this journey of what it looks like to follow Jesus, is summed up really well. All the different aspects of it in many of these psalms, which is why we're looking at them this summer. So we're going to read Psalm 129. It's a it's a short one, and I think that, I think it says Psalm 128 on the slide. We'll see. Uh, but don't get confused because it's Psalm 129. But we have to do something to keep you guys on your toes because um, it's summertime and people fall asleep. So, okay. Um, yep, that's what it says. So, unbelievable. Whoever's in charge of those, they're done. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Steve, it's me. So Psalm 129 says this, the psalmist writes, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. Those who hate Zion, let those who hate Zion be put to shame. And turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So this um, is the point in the Israelites' journey uh, to the promised land, or to, to the holy city, to Jerusalem, where they're getting weary and they're getting worn out. They've been on this journey for long enough that they're starting to be done with it. They're kind of probably at the point where you're the furthest away from your home, you're the furthest away from your destination, and as a result, you're like, this is not very fun. You've been to that spot, you've probably been at that place on if you've gone on a road trip, and you've just been pushing through and you're like, I've hit that spot where I'm like, this is no fun any longer. And then you have to come up with a way, you have to figure out a way to keep yourself moving through that. You have to push through that and push past that point of resistance. I was on a road trip with my kids a few weeks back. We discovered, I introduced to them for the first time um, Slurpees and that got us through. Like, I recommend it. Um, uh, even in a new car, I recommend it. Um, and uh, it, was, it was just what we needed. We got to this point where we were lagging, we were dragging, we had a couple hours to go in the drive, and what are we going to do? And rather than do what I naturally would think to do, which is just kind of keep pushing on and forget that there's other people in the car with me and they care about things and they're human beings um, who have needs and desires and all those things, I, I was like, you know what, hang on a second, we need something in order to get us through this, otherwise we're just going to lose hope completely. 
There was a point when I was in college and um, Ellie and I were dating and she had gone home for the summer and I wanted to go visit her, surprise her. So I drove through the night on this sort of windy, sort of notoriously treacherous road called the Grapevine in California and through the mountains and everything. And um, in order to do that, you know, I, I, did, I did what I... I, I did this the way I did everything in my 20s, which was I didn't really think through it very well, and looking back, it was a terrible idea, but um, it, was, it was fueled by passion and love, so how could you fault me? And, and so I thought, well, I've just got to drive all, uh, through the night. That's no problem, through this dangerous uh, area in a car that's not super reliable. Um, and so I stopped at a truck stop because I needed a little boost, and I got, I got a Red Bull. And then, you know, they have those pills at the register that are like caffeine pills. I was like, hey, these, these seem to work for truckers. So I got some of those. Um, I'll never forget, they were called Nitro to Go. I know, because I'll never, ever take those again. And I did make it. I made it, and um, I surprised her like in the middle of the night. I hadn't really thought through like what I was going to do because she lived with her parents and it was the middle of the night and they didn't want that. So, um, and then the whole next day I kind of had planned I would just sort of sleep, uh, but I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't sleep and my heart was practically exploding in my chest. So, <laughs> you know, you, you, you get to that point where you're like, I've just got to push through. I've got to get through no matter what. And you do whatever you know will work for you. And for the Israelite people, when they get to that point where they are like, we are on this journey and we are getting discouraged and we are getting weary and worn out, they did what always worked for them, what they were known to do, which was they looked backwards into their own history because that was how they found encouragement. Um, what the Israelite people would do, their identity was rooted in the things that they had been through as a people. And so whenever they needed to be reminded of exactly uh, how far they could be pushed, exactly what they could get through, and, and, and how powerful God was, they would simply look back at these terrible things that had happened and, uh, and, and in fact, what we're reading in this psalm is we're, we're reading the psalmist kind of like a worship leader who's telling everyone to do that. So this is like the most depressing worship leader of all time. They're basically saying like, hey, everyone, they're like moving around the stage. Let's get ready. Let's go. Let's get pumped up. Let's think about how we have been afflicted from our youth. Everybody say it with me, right? Greatly have they afflicted us from our youth. Yet, yeah, yeah, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows, right? Let's all get ready to go. Here we go. You're like, what in the world? This is the most depressing, worst thing I've ever read. Why would this keep them going? If you know anything about God's people, you know that their entire history was one that involves a lot of suffering. And that they found, uh, when the psalmist is talking, they're not talking about their own personal youth. They're talking about the youth of the nation of God's people. The early days, which are generally considered to be the time after the Exodus. They, they were freed from Egypt. God brought them into freedom. The entire generation of people who had been enslaved at that time and were now freed had only ever known slavery. They'd been born into slavery. I mean, just imagine for like a moment what it would be like to give birth to children, to build families, to get married, to develop friendships, to try to develop a culture entirely in the context of being a slave. That is what the Israelite people, this whole generation, began as. And God then did something incredible and miraculous and amazing and gracious. He freed them from their captors. He brought them into 
the, into freedom, and he brought them out of Egypt, and as a result of that, they as a people, that was kind of their birthing, is what they, what they, how they thought of it. And so what happens? God, God brings them out, and in their youth, their earliest days, we read that they've been afflicted from their youth. Like, that's depressing. Why? How in the world is that the case, right? They've just been freed from the bondage of slavery because as, as soon as God's people are released from their captors, what happens? They chase them into the wilderness, and they're yet again uh, sort of backed up against the Red Sea and reminded that they're not actually free. They're not out of trouble yet. They come out of Egypt. They're not in slavery anymore. And what happens as a result? They're chased by the Egyptians, only to be delivered by God, miraculously. They suffered the despair of wandering in the wilderness for an entire generation while fighting off people who want to rob them and want to take from them. Um, And then God brings them uh, before a promised land, a promised land that they themselves have to invade and have to fight people in order to conquer. They have to overcome the incredibly... uh, intimidating group of people that were occupying this promised land. And as they overcame it, now they have to defend it every day from that point forward from those people wanting to come back into the land that was theirs to begin with and other people wanting to take God's land away from them. The, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, have never lived through a time when there wasn't some enemy or some hard circumstance that was making things worse than they should be. This was just the way of life for them. Life wasn't really ever easy. And so as they're encountering trial and adversity in this journey, the psalmist says to them, let's remember that from the beginning, we've been suffering as a people. This is who we are. This is kind of what we do. And it's actually what we do well, at least in the best of times. There's people out right now, there are people devoting their entire lives to giving us the opportunity to live on Mars. And I don't know about you, but I hear about that, and I think that seems like it's going to be pretty tough. Uh, I've never been to Mars. Um, I've seen it in movies, and um, uh, not real movies. I think they filmed it in a desert here on Earth. But everything I understand about what it will be like to live on Mars is that it will be rather inhospitable to those who live there. I can't think of anything more stressful than choosing to go that far away to spend the rest of your life living in a place where everything will make you die all the time. You, you don't get to go outside if your, you know, atmosphere breaks down. You aren't going to be okay. If your spacesuit breaks down, you're not going to be okay. There's no water. There's no oxygen. Pretty sure there is sunlight, but that's all, just about all that there is. Everything about living in a place like that, it's like trying to live underwater, right? Try to go live at the bottom of the ocean. Everything about that environment is inhospitable. The way that God's people seem to go about living their lives, it's as though they're trying to make life work in a completely inhospitable place. And you think about what that would do to a group of people. Well, what it does is it affects the way that they see themselves. And so they say, they pretty much own it, greatly have they, their enemies, afflicted me from my youth. This is who they are. 
And you go, well, how bad was it really? I mean, they probably, they were used to it, right? So it probably wasn't that bad after a while. They just kind of got used to it. They stopped expecting things to be nice, so they just kind of didn't mind, and they were maybe a depressing group of people to be around, but they were people that it was hard to disappoint. And yet you read uh, the description of what it feels like to be one of God's people. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Imagine that your back is a field of dirt, and someone has gotten a bunch of ox, uh, oxen or whatever pulls a plow, and uh, they've set up a plow into your back, and they've put some oxen and tied them to the plow and said, go for it, guys, and they are just carving valleys into your flesh. This is how it feels still to them. The pain is significant. The discomfort is always there. And it is being caused by other people. People who are directly out to harm them. It's very likely at this point that a Jewish person is on this journey with their family, heading to the holy city, and they are dealing with and encountering hostile people. And they're reminding themselves that this isn't really anything new. You think, well, my understanding of it, though, is that if you get God on your side, if you have God on your side, then you probably won't have to deal with hard circumstances or bad things. Isn't that kind of why people turn to God? And then you read about the Israelites, and you're like, wait a second, what is the deal here? These are God's people, and yet they seem to suffer constantly. I don't think that what we read about here is actually very different from the way that we actually experience life to this day. The truth is that life is very hard. Life is hard. It is filled with difficulty and adversity. And having God on your side, being a child of God, does not seem to prevent all of that stuff from happening to you. It's normal to feel like life isn't going the way that it should. I'll say that again. It's normal to feel like life isn't really going the way that it should go. In fact, I think if you feel like things are going the way they should go, you're either in a very specific period of of life. And I, I will tell you, it probably isn't going to feel that way for a very long time. Because we all go through periods of time where things are just generally easier. Things do all seem to be kind of falling into place. Things seem to kind of be working out pretty well for us. But that isn't the typical experience that most of us have. Or it's possible that you're just doing everything you possibly can in life to avoid any kind of pain and hardship. You're doing anything you can to cope with what's happening, and you're, you're shutting yourself off from actually dealing with it in any kind of a real way. Or you're, or you're pushing out of your life anything that could possibly cause you any harm or any discomfort, which includes people, and includes your, your, your job, it includes your family, it includes all kinds of things. Anything that might cause you difficulty, you just turn from it and say, that's not going to be a part of my life anymore. God does talk about the hardship of life as something that we are able to avoid some aspects of for sure. 
In fact, a lot of the wisdom psalms, we, we've just read um, a few wisdom psalms over the last few weeks, psalms that specifically point out uh, wise things that should help us in how we live, or you read about things in wisdom literature like the Proverbs and stuff like that in the Old Testament, you're basically reading parts of the Bible where God says, life is hard enough as it is, don't be dumb and make life any harder, is basically what those things are saying. He's saying, be wise and live wisely because things are hard enough as they are. Don't make them even harder. Really, you shouldn't do that. So God does speak to this and does give us ways to avoid like definitely a a pretty good amount of the hardship that comes along that's caused by foolishness, that's caused by sin. But the truth is that the most common experience of a person living on this planet is hardship and difficulty. That is the lot that we seem to be dealt. And it isn't about how mature you are. It isn't about how godly you are. We know that because we read from people in Scripture who describe things that seem even worse than what we go through. These are the words of Paul written in the, in the message translation. He says this, I have been beaten times without number. I have faced death again and again. I have been beaten the regulation 39 stripes by the Jews five times. I've been beaten with rods three times. I've been stoned once. I've been shipwrecked three times. I have been 24 hours in the open sea. In my travels, I have been in constant danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, and from pagans. I have faced danger in city streets, danger in the desert, danger on the high seas, danger among false Christians. I have known drudgery, exhaustion, many sleepless nights, hunger, and thirst. Fasting, cold, and exposure. Sure, apart from all these external trials, I have the daily burden of responsibility for all the churches. Do you think anyone is weak without my feeling? Paul is talking about this very real truth. Life is really hard. But he is also someone who shows us in the way that he lives his life and we see it in God's people that there is another truth that is at play in our lives which is this God still loves you we as believers as followers of Jesus are living our lives with these two realities equally playing out the reality that life is hard and also the truth that God still loves you That somehow we are trying to reconcile those two things together. And that because God loves you, that doesn't mean that life will stop being hard. The psalmist says this simply, despite all of the people that have been against me since my very youth, despite the fact that they're carving channels in my back with the trials and the pain that they're causing me, They have not prevailed against me. You see, because God loves us, because we are his children, we know, we have confidence in knowing that he, that they have not, that they will not, the evil will not prevail, it will not win out, it will not ultimately defeat and conquer us. And we know that it is because of God's love that that is the case. Even though the pain is so great, we know that they have not prevailed against us and they will not. 
The psalmist goes on to explain what that looks like. He says it this way. He says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So what he's saying here is, now imagine that these, these oxen who are pulling a plow through your back, uh, I know, sorry, but it's here, so we're going to imagine it, as this is happening to you, now imagine that God has kind of walked right up behind those oxen and just cut the very cords that connect them and what they're doing to the plow itself. And so now what's happening is that even though they're still engaged in all of the same effort and work that they are against you, it is no longer harming you in the way that it was before. That God has somehow taken away from the enemy, your enemy, their ability to genuinely cause you harm and to bring about death in your life. And what's kind of ridiculous is this picture of these uh, oxen just kind of like roaming around a field now, thinking that they're just doing a great job, right? They're, they're, going, they're working hard today. They're, they're getting some work done. They're getting the field plowed. When in reality, they're just kind of moving around doing nothing. They say this is what will happen in the life of a believer That even though there will be people still against you, even though there will be things that are still happening that you're dealing with in some fashion or another, that God will cut the cords and as a result of that, prevent you from being defeated by these things. Life is hard. But God still loves us. And so what do we do in light of that? Well, in the very same way that an Israelite person on this journey to the holy city must find a way to press on, we have to do the same thing. I think much of the time, we either try to pretend like things aren't hard. We try to run from things that are difficult. We try to be uh, distracted from these things. Whereas the Israelite people like knew that they were never going to get away from this. And so they had this ability to look the difficult thing right in the eye and then even look back to other difficult things that had happened before. I don't think we like doing that very much. I don't think that we like looking back on the hard things that have happened very much. I don't think we like really facing and confronting a lot of the hard things that are happening to us in the moment that they're happening. I think we prefer as a culture to just kind of be distracted by other things, right? Go, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, how would you get distracted from things like that? Well, how many people really care about what's going on in like a Johnny Depp trial right now? I mean, how many people really want to know what happens next between Chris Rock and Will Smith and when we're going to find out? Why are those things that we all know about and care about so much because they're distractions from the other things that are going on? And anything that we come across that provides us with that is like relief in these difficult situations and these circumstances. God's people knew that they couldn't really do that. They weren't going to get away from it. And so instead they embraced it and they said, what does it look like for us to live through this? What we ought to do is simply embrace this. Because God is faithful, that means that we have the ability to endure these hardships. That God loves you, and God is righteous, the psalmist says, 
And because of his righteousness, he has cut the cords of the wicked, which means he has removed from them the ability to destroy you, to kill you, to hurt you in, 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 in the most meaningful and significant way that they really could. And so as a result of that, the good news is, the very good news is that because of God's faithfulness and our trust in his faithfulness, because he's proven himself faithful before, and we trust he will be faithful moving forward, you can endure Or in other words, you can persevere. You can bear up under the weight of this thing, which is what we are called to do. We may not be able to change the thing that is happening. And I don't think that we're called to just ignore it and go the other way. But instead, just as Paul did, just as God's people do, we're called to persevere through it. Choosing to live in the midst of hardship to continue on your journey. Choosing to fight when you could give up. This is called perseverance. And it's one of the most basic and yet misunderstood parts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is why there is no greater analogy, I think, for the life of a disciple than a journey like the one God's people were on on their way to the holy city. It truly is a long, difficult journey, headed in the direction of God, knowing what is to come and knowing that it will be hard. As we leave what is comfortable to us and we live our lives as sojourners, as people who are, in a sense, wandering in the wilderness, we have to choose if we're going to lie to ourselves about what's going on, spend all of our time trying to cope with what's going on, or actually persevering and enduring that which is happening and that we're in the midst of. You know, I think we really like the stories in the Bible that show someone dealing with a situation that's hard and then overcoming it and moving on. I think we like stories in the Bible where there's like a single bad guy. We like Goliath. We like Goliath because he gets defeated by David and then he keeps going, right? We like the Red Sea because they get past the Red Sea thing and then it's in their past. We like Elijah the prophet calling down fire from heaven to consume the enemy altars. We like to believe that God's man, that God's woman is simply a person who fights a battle or two and then they get to reap the reward of that. But really that is not the majority of what the Bible shows us it is to be God's man or to be God's woman. What it shows us is that, is, that, is that the Bible is an account of God revealing himself to people, calling them, urging them, empowering them even to persevere and to endure through hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. Why would Jesus begin his own ministry by being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days? Why did Moses spend um, 40 years exiled from Egypt before God ever called him to deliver his people? Why did Abraham have to wait so long to have a child and then God ultimately calls him to sacrifice that child when he does come? Why does David have to flee from Saul for years and live in a cave? Why do the disciples have to endure constant adversity in the midst of the most powerful years of their ministry? Why would God continue to choose to work that way instead of the way we'd all prefer that he would work? Why would God choose again and again and again to instead of uh, picking what seemed like the best people and then giving them the ideal circumstances, choose weak people who have issues 
and then let them go through hard circumstances. Why choose the people who are the broken, the weak, the despised, the uneducated, the outcast? God, choose better people for crying out loud. Choose some better people. Give them some better circumstances. I'm pretty sure you can do that. It'll go better. Trust me. Why not just give them paradise and let them see, the, let the world see just how good things are for people who love God? Why force them in so much hardship that hardship itself becomes a part of their identity? It is because God is producing something in them, something that will do far more than easy circumstances. He is producing a people with perseverance. He is producing a people with endurance. He's a producing a people with this thing that we like to call in America grit. That is what he is doing in these people. We have this tendency to want to believe that all great people who do great things started out great. We believe that um, it's easier for us to believe, like scientists have actually studied this and philosophers have debated it, it is preferable for us to believe that there are people who start out with like genius, with amazing talent, and then they just kind of build on that and the rest of us don't have it. It's actually easier for us to believe the world works that way than to see the way that it really works, uh, because the way it really works is, is something that might be harder for us to swallow. Um, Nietzsche, a uh, not really Christian philosopher, recognized our tendency to do this, and he said it this way. He said, because we think well of ourselves, but in no way expect that we could ever make the sketch to a painting by Raphael or a scene like one in a play by Shakespeare, we convince ourselves that the ability to do so is quite excessively wonderful, a quite uncommon accident, or if we still have a religious sensibility, we consider it to be a grace from above. It's his way of saying that it is easier for us to believe that people just have these incredible abilities given to them somehow than that they actually are developed some other way. If we think of genius as something magical, we are not obliged to compare ourselves and find ourselves lacking. To call someone divine means here, there's no need to compete. People have continually um, asked these like world-class athletes, these incredible inventors, the people who have quite literally shaped our society about where they started and how they got to where they are. And people continually make the wrong presumption that these people simply started out with this immense amount of natural talent. When in reality, when you look back, these were the people who developed perseverance. These were the people who went back to a thing again and again and again and again and again and again and again. When they least wanted to go back to a thing, to work out a problem again and again, when everyone else walked away and gave up on it. One social scientist studied specifically people who attended West Point. And what they studied was they wanted to understand why some people succeeded in such an elite place and other people didn't because it seemed like all these elite people got in. It's incredibly difficult to get into West Point. You have to be incredibly talented and gifted in order to get in. There has to be incredible potential. But so many people who got in didn't last. And as they studied the students and their aptitude and all these different things, what they recognized was there was a difference between talent and what they called grit. 
or what we call perseverance. That people who had shown a pattern of overcoming obstacles and working hard to get there did better than the people who just seemed to have some kind of great natural talent, come from a great family with a good reputation, have better resources that they had at their advantage. You see, it's actually easier for us to look at great people who do great things and think, they're just like that. I'll never be like that. I never have to worry about feeling bad that I won't be like that. When in reality, many of us could be like that. Were we to simply do the thing that is so incredibly difficult for us to do, which is to endure. We would love to believe that the way faith works is that God finds these truly amazing people. And then he just gifts them with amazing circumstances. That he empowers them with these incredible abilities to do amazing things that will blow the world's mind. But in truth, God finds broken people. And then God, out of his love for them, allows those people to endure circumstances in which they will be shaped and formed into something that is beautiful and wonderful. The hard part is this. We really, really don't like enduring. We don't like persevering. We don't like pushing through the pain and what's going on. We like avoiding it. We like getting away from it. We like believing that it's someone else's fault or focusing on the person who's carving rows into our back like a field instead of actually asking the question, what is it that God is doing in this and in me now? Christian discipleship is a decision to walk in the ways of God steadily and firmly and to keep going when it gets hard. These uh, Jewish people, these Israelites, are heading to the holy city, and they are encountering all kinds of difficulty. And so what they do is what they know to do because it's worked before. They say, remember how hard it was before, and remember how God brought us through it. And what that says to us is we can trust God will bring us through it again. God brought me through those dark years and he didn't leave my side, even when I felt like he wasn't there. I can tell you that the bad thing about a relatively small church is I know a lot of your stories as I stand here and talk. You see, if it was gigantic, I'd just be like you're a mass of people. But I know enough about everybody here right now that I know that at least 50% of this room needs to hear that what God is saying to you is to persevere, to endure. And to the other 50% of you, there are people in your life who need to hear to persevere and to endure. And you are the one to bring that message to them. We don't have the answers for each other. We can't explain why things are so hard. We cannot explain even what it is that God is doing all the time. But what we can do is we can encourage one another 
and remind one another of what God did before and that he is good and will do something again. We are not to be a people who are perfect. We are to be the people who work to endure and to bear up is what endurance means, to bear up under the weight of a thing and that that endurance, Scripture tells us, will produce within us hope. And hope is a beautiful thing. He gives an example of like, what it looks like to go the other way as he talks about these enemies. He says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Boy, if there's ever a place that we can relate to the picture of grass growing on housetops, I feel like it's where we live, right? Grass grows on rooftops here, okay? We're at that time of the year right now where, like, um, you know, we're past the point where all the pretty green stuff that grows literally everywhere stayed green, right? We're now at the point of the year where you pretty much can tell where people are watering things and where they aren't. You can tell what things depend on water daily and what things can go quite a while without water because everything starts to turn brown, right? It's not the most uh, beautiful time. I like it a lot better a couple months back when everything was green, the sides of the freeways and all the fields that we couldn't afford to put sprinklers on and everything like that, right? But what we know is that where this is spoken, uh, the people that, that are reciting these words are living in a place that is so dry, a place that is so rocky, that yes, dirt and soil accumulate on things, but it's so thin. And so then when it rains, what happens is everything grows. Sure, of course it does. There's grass and beautiful things everywhere, but, but it's not the kind of crop, it's not the kind of grass that you actually are cultivating. It's not the kind of thing that you can depend on. It's not the kind of thing that someone's going to walk by and say, that's a beautiful field you have there. I really love the crop that you're growing on your roof, right? Uh, I hope that feeds your family well, right? No. Instead, it's superficial. The reward of the wicked is fruits that will ultimately not last. You see, the temptation for us is to, is to abandon what we know to be true about God and his faithfulness and to say, you know what, it does seem easier to just kind of give in and go another way. People seem to be producing some fruit. They seem to be able to find other ways of coping and getting away from this. They seem to even be able to grab onto narratives that make a little bit more sense of the pain but really just give them an enemy to be angry at that isn't sin in the enemy. And, and honestly, you know, giving up feels like going down that direction. And what's so appealing about it is that it seems like there's fruit there. It seems like these enemies of mine are happy. It seems like people are growing something and reaping some kind of reward. And yet, what the Jewish people are reminding one another of is that the fruits of that is superficial. We often think that if you go the way that is not of God, that there's just total barrenness. But I don't think that's true. I think the Bible talks a lot more about like the kind of fruit, the kind of things that grow up, but aren't really of substance. They're not really enough to feed you. They're not really enough to keep you going. They're just enough to keep you distracted until the next thing that you can come up with to keep you distracted. And this is a very tempting alternative much of the time. 
The truth is, things are hard. Sometimes the pain that we are persevering through is there because God allows it in our lives to grow us, to keep us connected to him, to shape us into something that is beautiful. Much of the time, the pain that we're going through is the result of simply being on a path that leads to death. Because the other kind of pain that people experience is the pain of not being on God's path. The pain of not being on that journey, but walking away from it. And that pain is one of realizing that the fruit that you thought would would bring you reward, would bring you pleasure, would bring you relief, is actually just dying off and wasting away. And now you have to go look for it somewhere else. But the psalmist reminds us of what that looks like and says that the true blessing of the Lord will be upon you. We bless you, the psalmist says, in the name of the Lord. Despite the difficulty, despite the pain, despite the suffering, we believe that we are a blessed people. You see, the temptation that God's people had, because they were really good in looking backwards, they were really good at it, was in their best of times, they looked backwards and they were reminded of all the good that God did and that he showed up for them and that their perseverance was met by a faithful God. But in the worst of times, when their fear overtook them and they lost sight of how big God is and who he is, they looked back all right, but all they saw was the problems. All they saw was the scary things that happened. And instead of looking back and being encouraged and inspired to trust God more, they instead looked back and got overwhelmed and went, man, look at how hard things have been. And, and was God really there for me? Or was God really there for us when we thought he was? But I can tell you that no matter how difficult the circumstances, we can still praise God and we can still press on and keep moving forward. In the midst of talking about all of the adversity that he dealt with, Paul himself, and I mean, let's be honest, that list, we're not going to beat that list, right? I mean, how many times did he get beat by how many different things, right? How We are not going to, anybody here got stoned in that way, in that way? No, I don't think you did, right? We're not going to beat that list. But what Paul says immediately after that, immediately after that, none of those things changed What he says after that, which is this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If that's the first time you've heard those verses, you haven't been around church very long. We say them a lot. Because we are a people who persevere, who endure, who bear up under the weight of what we are experiencing. And we hear the words and read the words of Paul, and we say what Pastor Justin shared a few weeks ago, that he finds coming up in his home again and again and again, as he and Megan look back on the things that God has done in their life, and you ask this one simple question, which is the exact question that God's people asked, and it is the exact question that we ask ourselves. Why would we doubt now? Let's pray. Father, you are such a good God. And we trust and believe that you love us because your word tells us and we have experienced your love. But God, we really, really, really struggle to reconcile that with the pain 
of life. Life is hard. It is harder than any of us thought it was going to be. I can count on one hand the number of times I've talked to people who have said, life's easier than I thought it was going to be. Or things are going perfectly according to plan. God, that is not our experience. God, we struggle to reconcile the difference between the difficulty of life that we endure, that we encounter, and how much you love us and tell us in your word. But God, you meet us in that place. And Lord, would you give us confidence, show us, help us to be firmly convinced of what the psalmist says right at the center of this psalm, God, are the words that matter more than any other words, which is that you are righteous. And that is why we can praise you and endure. We don't endure and persevere because of our willpower. We don't endure and persevere because we've become so amazing of people. We don't endure and persevere because we are even great at being faithful. The reason that we can endure, the reason that we can persevere in all of our frailty and all of our fear and all of our confusion and frustration and weakness is because you are so so faithful to us, God, that you are there with us in the midst of that. God, there are so many here today that need to hear those words to press on, to endure, and who are feeling weak and incapable of doing that. God, would you just bring those people, would you bring those of us relief, and comfort in knowing that it is not in our righteousness that we stand firm, but it is in yours, God. And would you make us people who go out with that message, that message that your faithfulness is so great, your love is so big, you have been so faithful, that you will continue to be there with us, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.